So you're probably thinking, where's Alan? And let me tell you where Alan is. Alan uh, is with the students today. And here at Mountain Park, one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out a way to um, make sure that our students don't feel like they are segregated or a part of a different church than Mountain Park, but that instead we're all together. And so one of the ways we're trying to be strategic about this is having Alan teach them once in a while and I come and get to share with you. And, and I love this. It's beautiful because it creates a way for when our students graduate from high school to feel very comfortable about coming into this room and being a part of this group of people. And so I'm super excited about that, and I'm also super excited that I get to be with you guys today. So as the student pastor or the pastor of student ministries here at the church, one of the things that I see as my job is to um, not just work with students, but to educate you all fine-looking people um, about some of the student things that are going on, about student um, vocabulary and student worldview and all of those different things. So before we begin the whole shebang and dive into the book of Esther, I just wanted to share with you a little bit about some things that are going on with our students. So when they talk to you or you talk to them, like, you can seem really cool and have the lingo down, okay? So the first one, you probably, if you text or you message or anything like that, you probably know the first one, LOL, right? That's an old one. It means laughing out loud, right? Okay, so the one you may not know is um, GTL, right? Do you know GTL? GTL made popular by the show Jersey Shore. It's um, gym tan and laundry. It's the thing you need to do every day in order to stay mint and fresh, right? So every day you have to go to the gym, you have to tan, and you have to do your laundry or you'll smell, right? So, so if a student uses that, you'll be like, oh yeah, gym tan and laundry, I got it. Yeah, of course, of course, right? Uh, another one, oh, um, FBO, which is Facebook official. When a couple has the defining the relationship talk, the DTR, they then will go to their separate houses and one of them will initiate the Facebook um, official thing and they'll say, in a relationship with Sarah, Banks, and then the other person will go, yes, accept, and then that is the way that the whole world will know that you are in a relationship together and it is official, right? <laughs> so, so Facebook official, that's a very big, big one. Oh, the other one, Facebook is also um, the way that videos go viral, like amazing amount. There, there's a video that I'm going to show you a clip of in just a second um, that has gotten, it's been out for a month. And last Thursday, I checked it, and it had 88 million views. 88 million in a month, right? Then I checked it this morning, 95 million views. Okay, so in like four days, five days, however many days, a lot more million views, okay? So I want you to watch this video, and then I'm going to ask you if you have ever heard of or seen or heard about this video, okay? All right, let's play this video. Okay, so that, that is Rebecca Black's Friday. How many of you have seen, heard of, heard about? Okay, so we have a good, a good portion of people. Great. Um, now, this video is made famous not because it is a, a good video. <laughs> it's made famous because it's horrendous, but it's also very funny. So uh, a little bit so you know about what's going on in the youth culture, and now we're going to go ahead and dive into some more serious stuff. Will you guys go ahead and pray with me this morning? Dear Father God, um, you are the God that has ordained fun, and you've ordained our lives, and I thank you that you take pleasure in laughter. But Father God, I ask that you would allow us to um, put aside anything that is distracting, 
that you would let us just focus on you and hear specifically what it is that, that you have for us today. Amen. All right, if you guys want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Esther, that's where we're going to be camping out today. Now, Esther is a really interesting book because um, uh, Alan talked from the book of Daniel last week, and the book of Daniel's much further along in the Bible than the book of Esther, but they happen at the exact same time period, or roughly anyways. So what happens in, in the Jewish history is that the Jews were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. They're enslaved, they're dragged onto Babylon, and they live there for a number of years. That's when the book of Daniel takes place. Now, the hearts of the kings in Babylon were softened, and they sent the Jews back to Jerusalem, right? Totally an act of God. And you can find out about them by reading the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, there were a certain number of Jews that stayed in the city of Babylon, or in the, in the, in the kingdom of Babylon. And that's where we get Esther, Esther is a young girl, probably around the age of 14, who stayed in Babylon when all the other Jews had left. Now, she's an orphan, we find out from this story. Her parents had died, have died, and we don't really know why, but she's being raised by her cousin, who's often referred to as her uncle, named Mordecai. So they're hanging out, and Mordecai has some sort of position at the gate, and, and he's he's an important political figure, but it never says clearly what Mordecai did. But we're jumping into this story, and the thing that I find interesting as you read about Esther is you soon will see that she's an extremely popular girl, she's beautiful, and she's probably pretty cool. That's what my students would say. She's cool, all right? And so I want, she, she's this Jew that then becomes queen, and so we want to look at how Esther goes through the process of going from being a lonely Jew to becoming the queen of all of Babylon. Well, it starts with the king. The king, whose name was Xerxes, is having this grand party. And not like Rebecca's Black party on Friday, he had a six-months-long party where basically he told the people who were in charge of the wine, do not let it stop flowing the whole six months. So him and his friends and all the other royal people from around the country decide they're going to have a six-month drunken brawl and party it, party it, party it, yeah. It's lots of fun, 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 right? So they do this, but in the course of time, seven days into this party, the king decides that he would like the presence and company of his queen, Vashti, who apparently was beautiful. So the king summons Vashti. Vashti, Vashti, come, come, come. And the eunuchs go and try to get her. And she's at her own party. And she, being an early feminist, I don't know, says, no, I'm not going. And we don't really ever know why Vashti didn't go, but she doesn't want to go to the king. And the king, who is completely drunk with rage, is furious and goes to his other buddies and says, what do we do? And his other buddies, who are probably also in the same state of mind, say, let's get rid of her. So they kick her out of the kingdom. And in the history books, although the Bible doesn't specifically say this, it says that Vashti was beheaded. Okay, so they get rid of Vashti, but then a couple days go on at this party, and the king realizes that he's really lonely. He misses the queen. So he gets his buddies together again, and he says, what, are, what, do, what do we do? I, I, I want a queen. And they say, okay, we've got this great idea. 
gather up all of the young virgins in the land. Pick the most beautiful ones, all of them. Just, just gather them up, put them in the harem, give them some beauty treatments, then you can try them out one after the other, after the other, after the other, and you can decide which one you like best. The king loves this idea, love it, right? He loves this idea. So he goes through the land and he picks up all of the virgin girls and puts them in with the harem. Now, Esther is one of the girls who is picked up. And let's go ahead and jump into the story. We're going to start reading in Esther chapter 2, verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the, hair, uh, under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who was in charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forget, forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed, uh, sorry, treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfume and cosmetics. And this is how she would go into the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take from her harem to the king's palace. And, the eve and in the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, she'd return to another part of the harem to take, uh, to take the care of Sheashkaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he had pleased her and would summon her by name. Then the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abinhale, to go to the king. And she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Te Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti, and the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday and throughout the providences and distributes all of his royal gifts. All right, so we see, we hear this over and over that Esther found favor with, with this person. Esther found favor with the eunuch. Esther found favor with the king. Esther was the favorite of all the harem, right? So we hear this over and over again, and we translate that into our modern mind. Esther was really popular. She was really, really cool for whatever reason. And if you try to describe what makes somebody cool, it's really hard. But I do know this. I know that the first rule about being cool is that you walk through life like this. You walk through life trying to be protected from any unexpectancies, any uncertainties, any hurts or miseries that may come. You just want to protect yourself. So we see this in the book of Esther that this is very much what's happened. Her parents die. Ain't no thing, right? She's adopted by Mordecai. All right, I got it. Uh, the king decides to take her into, her into his harem. No problem. That's fine. I'll do that. The king takes her into his room. Uh, okay, that sounds good. And then makes her queen. All right, no problem. Uh, it's fine. Rub it off, right? So we see Esther going through life, playing this very cool, cool role, being unfazed by anything until something happens. There's this man named Haman. 
and Haman works with the king. And Haman um, rode through the town one day on a horse, and he rode through the town, and he called out, everyone needs to bow down, and the order was given out by the king that when Haman passed through the city, everyone was to bow down to him, to show honor and respect. But Haman walked his horse past Mordecai, and Mordecai stood there and did not bow down. And Haman was furious. He was furious about this. And Haman's, or Mordecai's reason for not bowing down was because he was a Jew. Now, last week, if you were here for Daniel, there's this whole thing about Jews not bowing to any other idol other than God above. And so Mordecai gave him this story about, I'm not bowing down because I'm a Jew, and so I, I can't bow down to anything else. Now, if you turn with me to chapter 3, verse 5, you'll see what Mor- uh, Haman's response was. Then Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel or pay him honor, and he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now, we don't really have, in America, thankfully, we don't really have proclamations of, hey, you get to kill all the Italians, or hey, you get to kill all of the Assyrians, or you get to kill all of the Armenians, right? We don't, we don't really have, um, we don't have proclamations like that. But if you watch the news, you will very quickly learn that even here in America and all over the world, there are terrible, terrible oppressions and travesties that happen on a daily basis. And I picked a few out to share with you when I was just watching the news and reading some articles that I read. Um, the other day, on Thursday, there was another earthquake in Japan. 25,000 adults and children die every day from hunger-related causes. 2.6 billion people live on less than $2 a day. That's 40% of the population. 2.5 million are in forced labor, including sexual exploitation at any given time. 1.2 million children are trafficked every day. Every uh, 15 seconds, another child becomes an AIDS orphan in Africa. 700 million Americans are homeless every night, and almost five children die every day um, to abuse. Three out of four of those children are under the age of four. Seventy-five percent of families in Maricopa County come from broken homes. This is a lot, a lot to carry. That is staggering, and it's really, really hard to swallow all of that, so I find what most of the time I do and what many of us do is we put up that barrier of, I'm not going to be affected by this, I'm just going to play it cool, and I'm going to keep going through my day because that is just too hard to deal with. So we just walk through, no, 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 ain't no thing, yeah. So kids and sexual exploration, exploitation, that's fine, whatever. I'm just going to keep walking. But the reality is, is that those things are horrendous. Now, when Esther heard about this thing, Mordecai goes to Esther and says, hey, Haman's planning to kill all the Jews. You need to go to the king. You need to ask him to stop. Esther wants to play the cool game just like all of us do. So turn with me in chapter 4, verse 11. This is Esther's response to Mordecai. All the king's officials and all the people of the royal providences know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. 
that they will be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and he spares their life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. Now this is what that means. Esther's saying, Mordecai, I hear what you're saying. That's all, I mean, that, that really, really is bad news and I'm, and, and I'm not real happy about the fact that all these Jews are gonna die, but there's not a whole lot I can do about it because if I go to the king, he may kill me. I may lose my life trying to say something to the king. So Esther's first response is, I can't do anything because if I try to do something, if I try to be affected by all that hurt and all that pain and everything that's going on, I might have to change my life. And I've got plans, right? Now Mordecai's response is this. We keep reading. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family's house will perish. And who knows that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai saying, you are going to die too. You are not immune from the hurts and the atrocities that are happening outside of the palace. You are going to be affected by what's going on. And it's then when she realizes that, that those people are her family and those people are her, and when they hurt, she hurts, that's when she does something. That's when she does something. She's affected by them. And so I think when we go through our lives, we have two choices. And, and Esther actually had less of a choice than we did. But, but we go through life, we have two choices. We can remain very much unaffected by the things that are going on and keep that wall up and say, no, that's not my problem, that's not my deal, there's not a lot I can do about that. Or we can choose to let that go. Put our guard down for just a second and realize that the people who are being hurt and oppressed and are in need are actually part of our family. And when they hurt, we hurt. That's our choice. And God gives us that choice. Now, there's a huge risk in, in choosing to put your guard down. And, and, I, and I was thinking about some of the risks that may have come. And um, I know that for some of you, one of the risks may be that you'll become a granola-eating barefoot hippie. Right? Um, I don't really even like granola, by the way. Uh, but... But for some of you, that, that's a real fear. I mean, like, it's a joke, but there's a fear that if I take that on, I'm going to, like, have to sell my house, and I'm going to have to become this person, and I'm going to have to walk with no shoes on, and, and what, if I, what if I, like, can't eat meat anymore? And, you know, all of these things. Like, I don't know what it is for you that you're afraid of. For me, when, when this idea of taking on other people's hurts, my fear was quite irrational, and I was afraid that I was going to have to have a sawdust toilet in my backyard, I know that that's really ridiculous, but all of my friends who were jumping on this bandwagon of, of fighting for injustice also were very interested in how to create a sawdust toilet in their backyard. And I was just like, I really like indoor plumbing. Like, I don't, I don't want that for myself. So, so there may be some fears about your entire life needing to change. And the reality is, as part of that is true, the fact that when we're affected by other people's hurt and pain, we do have to change our life. For me, the practical way that this turned out was not a sawdust toilet in my backyard, although I thought about it a little bit. Okay, it was not a sawdust toilet in my backyard. Instead, it was my brother coming to me and telling me he was a vegetarian. This was about 10 years ago. And I was like, why are you a vegetarian? And he said, because do you realize there's, there's a food shortage in the world and the people who need food aren't getting it? 
so. He said, well, when I eat, when any one of us eats one pound of meat, it means that that, to create that one pound of meat, we used 17 pounds of grain, which could have been used to feed lots of people. Now, I'm not trying to tell you you should become vegetarians, and I'm not a vegetarian, so I don't want you to hear that. But what I do want you to hear is I want you to hear that this was the beginning of this journey for me. And it began with that little thing, and I started to walk down this path of learning about how the food that we eat either can help someone have a job and welfare and, and, and a life and happiness, or it can oppress hundreds of people. And after that started to happen, I would go into a grocery store, and I wouldn't know what bag of bread to buy because I didn't know which one was, like, helping someone or which one was killing someone. Like, I just didn't know what to do. So it can be feeling very, very overwhelming. But as I continued to walk that path, I learned that for me, food economy is the thing that gives me a tremendous amount of joy because I find God in it. I find that when I'm not so overwhelmed, when I just take it a piece at a time, I glorify God through that. Now, that doesn't have to be your thing. Your thing can be completely different. The beauty is that God gives us the grace and a specific thing that we're supposed to fight for. And it's different for each one of us. And when we pursue that, there's an immense joy that comes. If we look in um, Isaiah, I actually want you to turn to Isaiah 54. I mean, 58, sorry. Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? Now, this is, this is God speaking to Isaiah and telling him how he wants to live. To loose the chains of injustice and to tie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, clothe him. And do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here I am. I think what Isaiah is saying, what I love so much about this chapter is Isaiah is saying is that when we choose to embark on this, this journey of letting that guard down and letting other people's hurt affect us, God shows up. God's able to say, here I am. And we can see him and we find tremendous amount of joy in that. Now there's this quote from this girl. Her name is Sarah Key. She's a, she's a beat poet. I love her. A slam poet. She, she does poetry to beats. Okay. So, so she's really, really awesome. Um, but she, she did this one, one time, and I just want to tell you what it is. I'm not going to try to beat it because I'm really not beating good. I'm not a good beater. <laughs> Okay, we're going to read this quote. All right, so she says, The number one rule about being cool is to seem unfaced, to never admit that anything scares you, impresses you, or excites you. Somebody once told me that it's walking through life like this. You protect yourself from all the unexpected miseries or hurt that might show up. But I try to walk through life like this, which means catching all of those miseries and hurts. But it also means that when beautiful and amazing things fall out of the sky, I'm ready to catch them. Ah, that's beautiful. I love that. Now, this is what Esther chooses to do. She gives this quote to, to Mordecai. She says, all right, I'm going to go to the king, and if I perish, then I perish. I'm going to do it. 
And through the process of her going to the king, she approaches him and he puts out his royal scepter, which means she is safe. And instead of just saying, king, save my people, she says, king, will you and Haman come to a banquet? And the king says, of course, why, why, yes, I will come to a banquet. And he goes to the banquet, and Esther doesn't ask then. She says, king, will you come to another banquet tomorrow with Haman? And the king says, well, yes, I will. So the next day, the king comes again, and this whole process is to butter the king up so that she can get ready to ask the big question. And finally, the king says, Esther, no more games. What is going on? Whatever you want, if even to the half of the kingdom, I will give it to you. And the queen says, Haman, this man right here, this vile adversary, is trying to kill me and my people. Can you stop it? And the king gets so angry that he takes Haman, and on the very pole that, um, on the very pole that, uh, that, that Mordecai was supposed to be hung on, Haman is hung on. And the king gets so angry that he goes and Esther says, the king says, I, I can't stop the edict. Whatever the king has said, that's what's going to happen. I can't then say, no, don't kill the Jews. That's not going to happen. And so Esther says, well, can you issue an edict that says that the Jews can defend themselves and that they can fight for themselves? And the king says, okay, let's do that. So he issues this edict and he says, all of the Jews can defend themselves. And not one Jewish life was, da- was, spa- was spared on that day. And the whole Jewish people were saved throughout the kingdom of Babylon because of what Esther had done. Now, this is the type of impact that we can have in our lives and in our communities and in the travesties that are happening. But you may be thinking, I'm not queen. I'm not Esther. How am I supposed to do any of that? Nothing compares to what Esther's able to do. Well, if you look through the story and you really pay attention, the reality is that Esther really didn't do that much. I'm going to have all these women that are like, what are you talking about? Esther's our, Esther's our hero. And that's true. She is a hero. But if you really look at the story, she didn't do that much. She went to the king, and she cooked him two meals, and she asked him to help. Who really did a lot of work was God who was working behind the scenes to make all of these things work out. If God had been taken out of this story, Esther's efforts probably wouldn't have gone very far. But because God is in the story, a tremendous difference happens. Now, Gandhi once said that the things you do in life are largely insignificant, completely insignificant, but it's very important that you do them. And I think the reason for that is because God takes our completely insignificant acts and he transforms them to be very, very important. He works behind the scenes to make something happen that will bring about something we never could have imagined. Never could have imagined. So your place that you're in is very important. Mordecai says to Esther, perhaps you were in a royal position for such a time as this. Perhaps you are in your family or your job or your community, or your neighborhood for such a time as this. But you would never realize it unless you let down your guard and begin to be affected by the hurt and the pain and the things that are happening around you for such a time as this. Now, for me, I feel this on a very real level because I oversee about 22 student D groups. And I love working with my D group leaders. They're awesome. I I couldn't pay them enough even if I had money to pay them, right? So 
I love them. And I kind of, by and large, trick them to being d-group leaders. It's true. And they work with a group about five to seven students. And as they're working with this group, they come to me, and sometimes they'll share some of the stories of what's going on in the students' lives. And they'll say, this is happening, and this friend, this this." student is getting picked on at school, or this friend is, is having this trouble with this boyfriend, and oh my gosh, this one has trouble with their family, and sometimes I just want to, and like all these different things, and they'll share, and then they'll end it with, Beth, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with all of the weight and the, and the hurt of all of the people who are around you? And I say, I don't really know, first of all. I don't really know how I deal with it, but I do find tremendous joy because I find that in those moments, that's where God shows up. And sure enough, a D-group leader will come to me after this whole crisis has settled down, and he or she will say, I found so much joy. I saw God work behind the scenes in this little way and work out this situation so that a student is brought to complete wholeness. Now, for some D-group leaders, they discover that this is not their shtick. This is not their platform. This is not what they're supposed to be doing. And God has not given them the grace to deal with students. And that's totally fine. Go find something else. That's great. But for others, they find that this is like this tremendous gift that they're given beauty and joy and something amazing if they let those students in. But the other thing that happens with those D-group leaders as they look back on the year that they've been working with these students And they're like, I really didn't do that much. And I'm like, okay, tell me what you did do. Well, I mean, I led a Bible study with some students. I like, I mean, I got to know them. I texted them all the time. I watched their Facebook status goes from Facebook official to not Facebook official and 10 times back and forth over the course of a year, right? And so... And so they're like, I really didn't do that much. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably true. You didn't do that much. But... God, we serve a God who works behind the scenes to make those insignificant things extremely, extremely important. Extremely important. And so my challenge to you today is to find something that affects you. You have been put in, in your household, in your, in your community, in your job for a specific reason. And I want to challenge you that you would begin to listen to the conversations that are going around around you, to listen to the things that are happening, the hurts and the pains, and to start to be affected by them. Because it's only when you realize that I, that bothers me, that affects me somehow, that God can then push you into being involved and making something extremely beautiful happen. Ultimately, that is where God shows up. Will you guys pray with me this afternoon? Father God, I ask that you would place something on our hearts in a real and powerful way, that you would reveal to us the things that you have called us to be affected by and that we would do something about it. Father God, and ultimately that it would not be a burden, but it would be an immense joy to know that we are worshiping and glorifying you. In your holy and precious name, amen. All right, Mountain Park, we'll see you guys later.